Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sir, I'm detecting a subspace message. I'll put it on speakers. Subspace. Dare to wander. And now, your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour with Dean Haglund and Phil Lairness. High atop the historic core in downtown Los Angeles. Yes. In the Art Deco Wonder that is the Eastern Columbia, I am Dean Haglund, and you this is correct. your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour. Very good, and yep. I am Phil Lernis, and this is Season 3, Episode 44, and Christmas has come early for me, and could last <laughs> every day for several years for me, actually, as we'll what? talk about. What? But first, what? let's talk about Sarah Pauly, women talking, yep. Mennonites, <laughs> because you were correct. It's Mennonites. Yeah. I saw the movie and you knew it was Mennonites from how I described it. <laughs> a real life case, apparently 2011. Okay. A hundred ritual rapes within the Mennonite community. Let's say. In Manitoba. Yep. Well, that's also hard, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's also hard. The last Friesen family reunion I went to, I was a teenager, perhaps. And uh, there were, let's say, up to a thousand uh, people there. That was my family reunion on the Friesen side in the Mennonite community. So uh, it's very oh, interconnected. Oh, that's the name of a family, not the yeah, yeah. weather conditions. <laughs> no, no, from Friesland, northern Germany. When of they were, course. Do I have to do Mennonite well, history? What about Grandpa Finn? Grandpa Finn's on the Swedish side, on my father's side. My mother's side's the Mennonite side. She bases this film on a book, ah, and yeah. then the book... I had not read the book, but the stories abound of, of um, you know, a, a very uh, regressive, shall we say, in terms of a Western culture, a patriarch society. Okay. But the point was, I was just really impressed that uh, when you said that sounds like Mennonites, you knew yeah. what you were talking about. Now, on the other hand... What did I miss? Leave it to you to get something very key right 
in a movie that you have not seen, <laughs> but to get something very key wrong in a series that you are watching and loving. Uh, Tim Burton has directed half of had, all the episodes of had, Wednesday. Has he? Yes. Every time I see Marshall... And- he did the first four, I think. Oh, uh, well, we binge watched. We loved it so much, we skipped the credits on all of it. Skip <laughs> recap is... Uh, <laughs> Sounds like the the name of a guy I was in a fraternity with. <laughs> I'm Skip Recap. Hey, man, how are you? Boom, boom, finger guns. Hey, how are you? Yeah. Uh, no, so, okay. And I have n- really no point to this because you haven't watched Mysterious uh, Benedict Society and you didn't watch Man in the High Castle. I watched uh, some of Man in the High Castle. So Joel De La Fuente played uh, the head of the Kempitai, I think was the name of the Japanese police in San Francisco there. Oh, yeah. And uh, he shows up in Mysterious Benedict Society, and uh, he's my favorite actor. <laughs> really? Yeah. I have a favorite actor, and it's Joel oh. De La Fuente. Wow. Yeah. So I just I'll scratch my name off your list. And <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> hey, I did. Oh, I didn't even write this down, but you, uh, I received a certain script came across my transom. Ta- what? Yeah. What, are you telling me? Something for a movie called Dead Slate. Down in Ohio? Yeah, I asked about that. Yeah? And they said, uh, could be Ohio, could be New York, could be Los Angeles. <laughs> wow. The first uh, thing that I know is that our characters' names are very similar. Yeah. And I don't know which one is which, and they can't remember, <laughs> which makes me think <laughs> we are... Because it was written for us. So we're going to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern our way through this thing. It, and as interchangeable. Interchangeable. Mm. We, we constantly will trade off introducing ourselves as one or the other. And yeah, we can even absolutely. do the... I, and I like it. So, Christmas done come early. Oh. As it does once every oh, yes. 10 years. Uh, every 10 years since 1952... Uh, Sight and Sound magazine, mm-hmm. the official magazine of the British Film Institute, right. publishes a poll of uh, leading film critics, yep. historians, teachers, and filmmakers from around the globe. Yes, a consortium. And, shall and we they say. publish two lists. One is the the top films of all time, right? And the other, since '92, the top 100 films according to filmmakers. Uh, now, I. Before we get to the list, I want to talk about the, the level of anticipation I had and what I was thinking about going into this. Right. Because if I were a betting man... Oh, you put money on this? I probably would have made a wager on what was going to be number one. Because, uh, as you, you no doubt recall, uh, last time in 2012, Vertigo supplanted Citizen Kane, which had been number one since for five decades. Yes. Yeah. Since 52. Oh, 52. Since the first yeah. one in 52. The irony being that if they had done the list in 42... Not enough people would have seen Citizen Kane the year after it came out, despite its 11 nominations, to know, right? Um, And also, sad irony of sad ironies, the 52 poll comes out something like a year after Wells sells off his interest in the film Uh, to raise the money to finish making, I think, Macbeth or or uh, Othello or one of those films. And uh, so the good news is we get another Wells film. But he sold off those rights for like $100,000. And the next year, the Sight and Sound poll comes out. And uh, yeah, yeah. That's probably generational wealth at that point, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, Anyway, uh, I did not expect that Vertigo could end up number one again this year. Right. So I started thinking about what I expected 
to be number one, and I'll, I'll just I- hit you with it. I expected that uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey might have a good really? chance to finally... It had been in the top 10, mm-hmm. and it seemed to me that in the last 10 years, Kubrick's reputation has only grown. Yeah, for sure. Whereas... I don't think the last 10 years have necessarily been that kind to Hitchcock's reputation, especially in the wake of certain uh, Me Too and social justice movements. Yeah, and also I thought that uh, biopic uh, where, where his wife is seen saving Psycho in but the I, editing I, room. But I think that only further enhanced. speaks to a different angle on this, which is someone who, let's put it politely exploited women in ways that they weren't necessarily happy about. Yeah, right. Right. And if we can say that his reputation sunk uh, to the tune of only having, I think it's six films on the top 100 now, (laughs) well, we should all hope our reputation sink that much. (laughs) But it should be pointed out, I don't think on this new one, Woody Allen or Roman Polanski have films on that list. Ah. Whereas Polanski does have Chinatown on the filmmaker list, but nowhere else. But just to keep with what I was expecting to see, I knew that the voting body, two things were happening since 2012. One, uh, some of the older members, as happens every 10 years, no longer with us. Right. So replaced by younger people. But they doubled the voting body from 800 to 1,600. How did they get another 800 film critics? By opening up to different voices. Ah. Younger voices, female voices, voices from other parts of the world. Right. So what I expected to see was something that certainly had more gender equity. I think, don't, don't quote me on this, but I think there were two films in the top 100 last time yeah. directed by women. Ah, Right. Now there's, now, now there's many, maybe even the number one film. And there were darn few, if any, there may not have been any films by black filmmakers. Oh, yeah. And also, I, I wondered, so not just social diversity, mm-hmm. but I wondered also about diversity in terms of genre. That's also something I was looking for because I thought maybe younger uh, voters, newer voters might not have the problem with genre films as ghettoized. For example, other than The Searchers, it was very difficult to find a Western on the top 100 the last time. Any comedy not directed by Chaplin or Keaton, I think it was only a Jacques Tati film in 2012, and of course, Some Like It Hot. Oh, of course. So I'm looking for that. Will comedy be be loved but a musical i mean uh singing in the rain was on before but also there weren't i don't know i think i think this year is exactly the same as last time i think the only two musicals are the same i think it's the red shoes from powell and pressburger and uh, which is dance yeah more than martin even musical musical. and singing in the rain which is a movie about silent movies (laughs) i know right and i think that's why it's on the list not because it's a musical because it's the history of silent um or this history is across the talkies yeah so so that's what kind of i was looking for in the hours and days and weeks and months (laughs) leading up to this Uh um and so would there be more social diversity also would a recency bias emerge to supplant what has historically been an anti-recency bias. 
In 2012, the only film from the 21st century uh. to make the top 100 was David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Right. At 28, which was not a bad debut, checking in at 28. Right. From 2001. Here, 10 years later, certainly there must be more films you would think. from the 21st century. So the list gets published, and the very first one that gets called out there from 2017. Hello. So, ding, ding, yes. <laughs> Recency from an African-American director. Okay. So some uh, diversity right, right there. Jordan Peele's Get Out, uh... which also, can we say ticks off the genre diversity. Right, horror. Box. Horror and comedy. And comedy, for yeah. sure. And here's what I kind of love right out of the gate. What's it tied with at 95th? Buster Keaton's The General. <laughs> oh. You could do worse oh. in terms of... I'm going to take I mean, two films to show you uh, the history the of cinema. And the history of comedy... And how comedy has evolved. And by the way, isn't Jordan Peele a, a student of silent comedy? Yeah. And, and, uh, I mean, comedy in general. Johnny, but, comedy in general. And also. But uh, as Nope, in, in Nope, I mean, it very much at its heart, it, it, it goes back to the silent era. For sure. So he knows film history, he knows comedy. Uh, his background is comedy chops, improv comedy. So I am pleased to hear. That a six-way tie for 95th, for 95th <laughs> including another Western. Oh. So we know The Searchers isn't going to be the only one. Once Upon a Time in the West. Oh. I just started watching that again, actually. Interesting that it's that one that gets a consensus, not uh, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Well, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, uh, I think, is... Uh, uh, well, not structurally, but there, there's an issue in it that I see as a filmmaker that I go... Uh, he's cutting corners, whereas Once Upon a Time in the West really opens up, and the cinematography in terms of uh, composition in the scene, uh, like, you know, when they do wide angle to get all of that scenery in, plus the characters, uh, that to me is a little more uh, thrilling than anything that happens in The Good, Bad, and Ugly. No, I could see that. I could see that. I also, though, wonder again, um, if you're younger and you're coming to mm. these movies, um, you might not be as thrilled by the progression as you are by the finished form. Your context uh, yeah, is yeah. different. Right. right? Uh, and all art is in context. Yeah. You know, depending on your point of view, in terms of time, mm -hmm. you're going to recontextualize these films differently as you are also in terms of social progress. Right, and, and what progress. resonates with you and where you are at a in your journey. A complaint that I heard leveled at this list uh, over the last 10 years um, <laughs> was how overrepresented white European males were. Uh, okay. That is where, uh, in addition to Hollywood large bases of not only culture surrounding film, but industry surrounding film have built up. Right. And where you have those, um, yes, obviously patriarchy always has a leg up. Right. Uh, white patriarchy, especially so. That said, this is, to a degree, a political campaign. Uh, Just like the award shows are. Yep. And you're going to build more of a consensus where there are consensuses to build. Yeah, right. 
Yeah, that so, you are like, oh, we're gonna, yeah. So that's why to... I expected that there, there, you know, there would be more of an opening to other parts of the world. And uh, wow, Katie, bar the door, uh, the uh, right out of the gates here. I think the first nine films, first twelve films, the first twelve films on the list, counting down from one hundred. Uh, there's there's one, there's two, there's three, four, five from Asian filmmakers. Ah, uh, um, Including Wong Kar Wai's Chungking Express. Mm-hmm. Ujetsu Monogatari, great film by Kenji, Kenji Mizuguchi, which I talked about uh, at some point over the last couple of years. <laughs> uh, but from 2019, Parasite. Oh, yeah. Now, I would have a rule were I running this poll. <laughs> which is no film that has come out since the last poll is eligible. Oh. Because I do believe that you want to protect against recency bias. Ah, right. And Parasite seems so innovative that you're like, oh, I'm going to... 2019, we're really saying that a 2019 film has has stood the test of the time. And, hello, just like we were just saying with Sergio Leone. If Sergio Leone doesn't make Once Upon a Time in the West... Does Good, the Bad, and the Ugly have a chance of being on this list of the top 100? Right, right. So, so. what if uh, uh, Bong Joon-ho's next film makes Parasite pale in comparison? <laughs> right. Then what do you do? you got to step up from that? Um, so. so, again, letting at least some context form, even if we have to recontextualize it later. Yeah. Th- that's, what I would, that's what I would say. Okay. I give that rule. I would say so. So, what's number one? Well, we're going to jump all the way there, are we? No, I don't know. Well, yeah, well, we yeah. can jump all the way there. I mean, so many films by female directors are represented. Uh-huh. Um, the fact that number one, well, I guess let's just go to 10. Okay, let's and go to we'll 10. Ju- and then we'll jump, then we'll jump back. And forth. Right, right. But 10, as you mentioned, Singing in the Rain. Yeah. Number nine, Man with a Movie Camera, which I think was uh, t- top 10 the last time. Yeah. Though the last time, I think it was the only documentary in the top 100. Right, but this is that uh, scary, creepy... Uh, uh, it's from sun. Russia. I've had it recorded forever and have never watched it. <laughs> but it's, it's... 1929 from yeah. Russia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bit, a bit uh, visually terrifying, shall we say. Wow, well, that makes me want to see it. <laughs> so jumping all the way from 28 to number 8, Hollywood is dark and dangerous, yet alluring in David Lynch's acclaimed thriller, Mulholland Drive. Well, now here I got a problem. But okay, you know what? Maybe I should watch it again. With Now that I listen to his weather reports, I have a much uh, more appreciation for his spaghetti against the wall technique, uh, that it is an exploration into uh, his, not his mind, but his curiosity and his tacit I'm going to say anger. Is it tacit anger? Because he is. Now I realize he is the angriest dog in the world. Uh, that's his cartoon he did, which was just a drawing of a dog tied to a tree going grr, grr, grr. And then an unseen people having a conversation inside a house through an open window. And the dog apparently hearing it going grr, he's angry, angry. And this was David Lynch's syndicated cartoon strip that went on for years. And it was part of the art life. The guy, you know, he's had gallery shows around the world. He paints. He puts on Broadway plays that you particularly enjoy on VHS. <laughs> I do. 
do not enjoy them. There was a whole chapter about that show in his book. No. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Room to Dream. Number seven, Beau Travai from uh, Claire Denis. 2001, A Space Odyssey was number six. It stays number six. Fascinating. So, you know what I was wondering? And I was curious, again, speaking about Hitchcock, Mm -hmm. whether just the whole concept of the male auteur could be in trouble. Oh. Um, But even if that was the case, I figured Kubrick would be fine. Because he's outlived the criticism of his personality that comes through. Like everybody always says, oh, Kubrick was so, remember this? He's so cold. Cold. So cold. Yeah, yeah. And then it turns out, no, you know, a very compassionate, warm, intelligent person can make movies that are cold because he's warning us about how easily we can become dehumanized. And I think that goes back to his uh, photojournalism, right? He was a, a, a photographic. That's a great uh, point. Yeah. A great point. He uh, worked for newspapers and magazines doing f- um, visual work first and being very much involved in the stories that he... That oh, my God. He, and when he, you even watch, like, Dr. Strangelove, uh, the the military scenes have a documentary style. The handheld, well, yeah. And, and at no time do you see the uh, army... It, it's like literally long shots from the window from Peter Sellers' point of view of him looking out going, there's an invading force, but it's a documentary style, handheld, out the window. So it stays at number six. Number five, making a huge leap. And I just happened to watch this. (laughs) Did you? This week. No. Because I've had the sequel to it uh, on disc forever, and I've been meaning to watch it again. And I thought, well, I should watch the the first one. I should watch In the Mood for Love from Wong Kar Wai. And what's the sequel called? Uh, 2046. (laughs) It's called 2046. Sure it is. Yeah, it's set in the future. It's a it's a thematic part of a thematic trilogy that he made. The connection is that it's hotel room twenty forty six in in the mood for love, where the unrequited relationship never fails to ignite. <laughs> wow. Uh, anyway, what a, what a, I mean, beautiful is all anybody ever says for it for in the mood for love. But I mean, it's uh, it is kind of exhilarating that right? movie. Okay. And, uh, I might watch it. Maggie Chung stopped doing movies at like forty because. I don't know. I don't know her. <laughs> I don't oh, know I, her. I thought she didn't like... You know she was married to Olivier Assayas, the French filmmaker who directed her in Irma Vep and who did Clouds of Sils Maria? Yeah. And he, she was married to him from what? 98 to like 2001. Maybe it was being married to a French filmmaker that said, uh, you know what, I don't want to do movies anymore. <laughs> but again, when I read about, you know, what, what she'd been up to, why doesn't she act? Why doesn't she, she grace us with her, her presence anymore? Because, man, she was, she was amazing. And... Um, still very much alive. Uh-huh. Um, but again, that funny thing that I tell you about from time to time when people are referred to as being almost, um, what's the word? Not hermits, but... Uh, Recluse. Re- reclusive. Right. Yes, like uh, J.K. Rowling is reclusive. Right. Unless you happen to go in for coffee <laughs> at the coffee shop, <laughs> shop where she where writes. In Edinburgh, right? yeah. Because not doing interviews is not the same thing. Right. As, uh, and based on some of the things that she has said publicly over the last couple of years, maybe reclusive would have been a good idea. <laughs> but uh, so anyway, so you'll love this about uh, Maggie Chung. Aside from attending fashion shows and award shows, she maintains a reclusive life. 
you know what? <laughs> if you go to one fashion show or award show, you're not a recluse. You, you, you got up, you put a shirt on. You are very much about being seen. Yes. I mean... Those are not hiding places. I don't places. like to be seen, but the but my two favorite things to attend are fashion shows. <laughs> and Any, red carpet. Red carpet events. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't like Please. to be seen, but I don't do enjoy to, to step and repeat. Yes. But I'm going to walk the red carpet and be seen. But anyway, I'm not seen. I've got to tell you, I don't know. Uh, I have no way of knowing uh, that this is a fact. I only know it's true. <laughs> And that is that In the Mood for Love was a huge influence on the team that made Mad Men. What? That's what I think. Really? Because yeah. he has the same feel to it? Um, so not only the era, of course, it's 1960s in, in, uh, in Asia. Right. But the production design, the placement of actors, the movement of actors, the size of actors within that within production frame, design, yeah. but the, the music cues... And the editing. <gasps> oh, fascinating. I, I believe that it's... It's just, they, they just used it as a template. Well, yeah, or they were just heavily influenced by it. And, okay. and in the mood for love's 2000. So it's not that many years later that... That's right. That it would be uh, theoretically in the space. So, so number four, uh, Tokyo Story, right. which the last time around um, was top on the filmmaker list yeah that was very high wasn't it it was yeah. al- it's always in the top it's five. always in the, the yeah it's always been in the top 10 but it was number one on the filmmakers list we'll right. we'll look at the filmmakers list in a moment sure. number three falling all the way from number two <laughs> my how the mighty has fallen what no that's uh, not that far citizen kane though what i what i do think and i haven't uh, again memorized this list i've only cursory glanced w- once all the way through but i don't think wells has another film on here the last time people were shocked that Touch of Evil had fallen so far. Quick, ask me what my favorite number is. What's your favorite number? 63. <laughs> Why? Because tied at number 63 is Casablanca and The Third Man, two of my five favorite films oh, of all time. Oh, that's fantastic. All right. But where's Third Man? Um, it's not even on here. 63. That's what I just said. It's oh, it is, tied uh, oh, at, at 63. 63. With Casablanca. With and Casablanca. Two no. of my five favorite films wow. are tied at 63. That was another thing apropos of this Alfred Hitchcock wonderment that I had. And again, Vertigo only falls from number one to number two. Uh, stand by, Houston. We are receiving signals from subspace. Wondering about uh, Carol Reed and the Third Man. Um, look, I think the Third Man, with maybe the exception of Psycho, is 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 better than any movie that Hitchcock made. Sure. Um, but uh, Carol Reed, I think it's seen that he doesn't have the body of work that Hitchcock did, except that again, just today I was watching Oliver, his yeah. Oscar-winning R- musical. musical. Um, and Odd Man Out I watched this oh, week. Oh, yeah. Uh, what was called the most suspenseful picture ever made. Right. And that was in the wake of some heavy-duty Hitchcock suspense films like Notorious. Yeah. Um, uh, but Odd Man Out was considered a big studio. He did uh, also, Carol Reed, uh, in the war, did Night Train to Munich, which I actually oh. said the time that I saw it is the best Hitchcock movie, not directed <laughs> by, by Hitchcock. Hitchcock. Yeah. But I wondered if maybe... 
the, the, the criticism really about Carol Reed is that he's, he's journeyman-like. Yeah. He's, because he doesn't imbue his movies with that personal psychology. Right. Not it, an auteur. Right. It, this is the idea of um, art directors being able to throw artwork on the floor of a variety of artists and that you can then point your finger to six or seven pieces in that scattered pile and go, that's the same artist. There's a fingerprint, an indelible thing, and you see it with uh, Hitchcock and you see it with Kubrick, but with I can't even think what his... So, so, I, so that's just what I was wondering, was, was might we be moving away from an appreciation of auteurism towards an appreciation for someone who's a great director and works in great collaboration with people. Like, and there's two of them, right? Carol Reed, Third Man, Michael Curtiz, Casablanca. Right. Um, but no, even as this list has changed so dramatically this year, there's actually as much, if not more, an embrace of auteurism. It's just auteurs of many different, different backgrounds. backgrounds. And I guess if it, the filmmaker uh, changes from the critics' poll, it would be to identify what a collaborative medium is and how hard it is to bring it all together. Like, in my mind, Casablanca. Casablanca would be a very hard film to make today because none of those elements would come together unless you all had uh, not just a deep trust, but a... But a uh, an ability to let go. Well, I mean, yeah, where do you light. begin? Where do you where do you begin with that? Yeah. yeah. So all the oh, never never mind the fact that it it might be the best written dialogue. Yeah. Um, and it is an ironclad plot structurally, um, and and it out Hitchcock's Hitchcock right right because it's like yeah the, his whole thing about the MacGuffin right the MacGuffin it doesn't matter what the what the object is yeah. and if you ask too many logical questions what Hitchcock said was the the idiot question <laughs> if you ask the idiot question then the whole house of cards falls right but what it means is we haven't been entertaining you enough um, fascinating even Citizen Kane has the idiot question right uh, at the beginning of of Kane right uh, he dies and he says Rosebud yeah and then and then the, the reporters mystery, yeah. what does he what does he say but how do we know that he said it because he's alone yeah he dies the broken glass crashes Crash. and that's when a nurse comes in I know so, so who heard that so it's so that's a subtle thing of arguing against it and maybe saying the press makes things up. <laughs> um, Fantastic. But uh, Casablanca has a great one of those too, right? It's the letters of transit yeah, signed by Charles de Gaulle himself. People will kill for them. They cannot be questioned even by the Fuhrer himself. <laughs> I know. Why? Why can't the Why can't I have a yeah. gun? You don't. I don't yeah, yeah. care what signature is on there. Yeah, right? Oh, but the leader of the Vichy... <laughs> Paper <laughs> dictatorship government is going to. That's your yeah. That's your ticket yeah. out of here. Yeah, but we don't dictatorial. We don't worry about government. it. Yeah, because uh, it just seems like it's really important who gets it and how the problems of logic don't amount to a hill of beans in that crazy mixed up world. <laughs> but a couple other things. Uh, here we are. We were about to get to number one, and now we're at number sixty-three uh, with a bullet we're stuck. But uh, yeah, it is such a magical lightning in a bottle, though, for so many reasons, because even the things that, like you're saying, are almost impossible, but still potentially within your control. But how about the idea of 
a back lot full of contract players who you can just go and grab yep. and and all these people Populate. bring their own character with them. Yes. And now how much does that cost to get those kind of people? Because they're the people they're the few people that are able to do character roles again and again yeah. and again. Like I, I always I always question uh, from a producer's standpoint Going okay, where they are competing in the bar, singing the two national anthems. Right, 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 right. Are those extras singing, or are they paid actors? Are they all getting the SAG minimum, uh, <laughs> or are they getting uh, central casting extras and just go, "Hey, sing the national anthem to Paris," and you you guys sing the national anthem louder for Germany, and and off you go. And then let's talk about the backdrop for a minute and mm. the role luck has to play. You know, it wins Best Picture when it comes out, and it wins Best Picture in no small part because of how good it is as propaganda. Yeah, in the for, war. Yeah, because it's 1941, and that was when. Well, well the, it's set in 41. It's made in 43. And so, North Africa campaign for yeah. the Americans—that was their first win. Darkest days of the the war. Yeah, right. For sure. And its reputation maintains through the years because of its effectiveness as a romance picture mm-hmm. how romantic it is though i will take exception to that <laughs> right but i think it was roger ebert who may have written about the fact that the reason there aren't great romantic films made anymore and, and this is before titanic and i don't think either of us are huge fans of titanic <laughs> but that's how people felt about that movie right. and, and he wrote this before that movie came out and i think that movie actually proves his point which is there are no backdrops in this day and age that immediately give you the gravity of a great romance. Right, that, that you're overcoming these odds against a... But uh, a darkness uh, is taking over the entire world and the people in the audience feel that too. Too, yeah. And, and that you are, uh, that's the hill of beans. And, yeah. and so, yeah, a boat sinking... A global uh, Second World War. Now, I mean, I don't know. Maybe their great romance will come from a pandemic, but we won't maybe. be able to see the people's faces. <laughs> um, right. You can't control that. You Obviously, you can't. No. What, what, that, that is out of your control. That is lightning in the bottle. But the lesson you can take from Casablanca, I think, is to realize that why it's romantic is that it's not a story of losing, regaining, losing again love. Right. It's a story about regaining idealism. Right. That's so it's why not, it's yeah. romantic. It's not boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl. It's uh, I am shattered. I exactly. fi- refine my idealism. And that idealism forces me to send the one I love off right. to save her. That's how romantic that is. That I'm yeah. like... The, my my deep love is that I I can't be with her in this day and age, and, and so and, off she goes. And a, and a sacrifice that an audience can appreciate, understand, and and maybe even wish that they were capable of. Right, you, because there was rationing. You, you sent your tin pans. Absolutely. All your pots and pans had to go to some collection agency to. So make oddly a enough, though, not a terrible film for us to be focusing on. <laughs> I know, this, right? This grand vision and these grand gestures. And here's the number one film. Again, I mentioned to you, I think only two films last time were directed by women. Right. And here's the number one film directed by a woman who died in 2015, Chantal Ackerman, a Belgian filmmaker. And, and, and you know that I... 
You love your Belgium films. I, I hate Belgium. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Only, oh, that's what it there's is. There's only two things on this earth I can't stand. People who are intolerant of other people's cultures and Belgium. <laughs> and, that, that's uh, the oldest joke. So Jean Dielman is often what it's referred to. I guess the feral title. Jean Dielman, 23, Quiet du Commerce, 1080 Bruxelles. That's her address. Yeah, her address. So it's about a... Uh, I love what they write, a magnificent epic of experimental cinema offering a feminist perspective on recurrent events of everyday life. Okay, what does that mean? It's a slice of life, an experimental little slice of life about the day in the life of, of a housewife. That goes on for how many hours? It's like the longest film. It, and, it's And so I don't know how this happened <laughs> other than there's some serious activism mm-hmm. in voting. It sounds like I'm coming down against this it as a does. choice, but I, I just, I'm interested in how these things happen. And also how, what, and what's how resonating. Talk, and how we talk about these yeah. matters because, look, a whole lot of people are going to see this film that never would have seen this film. Right. I remember 10 years ago, Vertigo, it's such a big deal. People who had never heard of the sight and sound poll heard about it because Citizen Kane didn't win. And I went the next day, the American Cinematheque held a screening of Vertigo, and it's the longest line I've ever been in wow. for any movie in Hollywood. You're kidding. And so how so we many talk people about these yeah. things and contextualize these things does influence people. We live in an era of consensus. We live in an era where Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic have a power. Right. Um, the individual voice, less so. Right. Um, though... What's fascinating is there are a bunch of films that made the list this time. I'm thinking, like, for example, Charles Burnett's um, Killer of Sheep. Yep. Uh, which was a student film originally. I believe it used really? LA is how it starts. Oh, my gosh. A black and white 16 millimeter. I saw that since the last poll uh-huh. because I have a book of essays called The A-List. Uh-huh. And it's a book of must-see films, but instead of being a compendium of a thousand movies you need to see before you die, (laughs) you need to read the essays to find out what movies they're telling you. And so does the essay Mm, make a compelling case for you that this is important, worthy of your time? And these are the, you know, throughout history, film critics who then go into filmmaking... Well, the the true concept of a critic, not a reviewer. Right, not a reviewer. That the, the critic is looking at the structure and the larger cultural context that a movie's doing and then realizing I'm going to step into the process itself that I have been uh, viewing to create that. So, so are you saying then that this jumping to number one is... The result of, so it's not critics saying this is number one. These are filmmakers saying this is number one. No, well, I think it's or uh, that we open it up to eight hundred more people that went. Oh yeah, I like this. Well, no, it's not that it's filmmakers because we haven't gotten to the filmmakers list, but oh. that was not number one on the filmmakers. Oh, list. so it is uh, at least to a greater degree um, the the other parts of the voting body. And yes, I would argue that since it it. 
suddenly appears here at the top of the list. It has to be largely among newer voters. And indeed, Chantal Ackerman's influence, I think, is has been up until this point most keenly felt probably in LGBTQ community mm. and in the avant-garde right. world. Yeah, big in the avant-garde. And I would expect that those aren't bad um, communities in which to uh, reach out for new members right. if you're seeking more diverse voices and opinions. Right. And it's valuable because don't we want to know not just how do we want to contextualize these films so that they find audiences and continue to make an influence, but how else do we know sometimes how these films are having an influence? Right. That for uh, like uh, something that you may be blind to, that everybody is resonating with deeply, and you're like, oh, yeah, I should see that's, this. That's the unique opportunity here. I mean, if we if we go back to, I was just looking at how at number twenty, that's the highest ranking Kurosawa film, and it's Seven Samurai. And I've said before, I think that Kurosawa might be the greatest filmmaker of all time, but he is undone in polls like this because there isn't one film that you can form a consensus about and say, that's the one. That's the I one. think you put Kurosawa fans in a room, they're going to fight over <laughs> the agree. order of his... his he, right. made, he made 30-something movies, I think, 30 maybe. Yeah. And uh, All I can say that 15 are must-watches. Right. But then, But it's also... He's he progresses as an artist. He progresses as an artist. So when you get to Ran, it's like so different than Seven Samurai. Exactly. Exactly. It's like so it's, you you can't compare those two films together. They're both amazing, and yet so it's, it's uh, well even Twenty One, right? Isn't that the Silent, the Passion of uh, Joan of Arc, which you love so much? So much. Which I, I have uh, I have fully fifteen already of the top one hundred recorded on my DVR of TCM. <laughs> um, uh, Coppola has two in the top 20. He has uh, Apocalypse Now at sure. 19, and he has uh, Godfather at 12. Funny story about Godfather. Godfather used to rank really high on this list oh. when they considered Godfather and Godfather 2 one movie. Uh, and then they separated them out last time for the first time, yeah. and they fell to like 40. And now the consensus is built around the first one. And that's fascinating because I've always believed and, and shared this in conversation and met with similar feelings that Godfather is the fun one, but Godfather 2 is the great one. The great one. It really, uh, uh, not dismantles, but uh, structurally tells a, a tighter story than the God, than the original. So you have um, also, you have The Searchers, as we mentioned. We have Agnes Varda's Cleo from 5 to 7. You have Jean Renoir's Rules of the Game. Mm -hmm. uh, and at 11, Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, which had always been a top 10 uh, uh, film. Yeah. Um, oh, and Bergman's Persona. Uh, Persona. Does it surprise them. you that it's not Seventh Seal? Or Cries and Whispers. Um, I mean, yeah, Seventh Seal comes up all the time. Just it's imagery, uh, but I think that's a Sven Nyquist film if, more than Ingmar. if there was a concerted movement, not only to open the vote, but for people with that vote to use it to redress what they saw as wrongs, mm. both societally and in terms of omissions Patriot. in the past right. from this list, 
which Bergman film is going to show up. Well, that's right. Persona would be the one, right? It's a feminist film. Right? Feminist film, and it's it's and it's still gripping I- imagery. It's got all the uh, Bergman I hallmarks. I, I forgot to mention from Iran, Abbas Kiristomi's uh, Close Up, which is a really interesting film. So great diversity in this top twenty uh, is what I was going to get at, mm. and. Why does that matter? Well, why it matters for me is, oh my goodness, how much can I learn about, again, what you just said, what's resonating Mm. with different groups of people? Because we, as we know, and I'm the 100 monkey theory guy, we uh, uh, are socially, our, our consciousness are all connected to a larger network. And if something's resonating with a huge group of people uh, that... I may only have a vague uh, sense of. I would like that to be a, a bit of a flashlight on that part of my brain. Thank you very much. And and the the idea that all these movies influenced people and, and numbers now. of people, though, who were not necessarily in the target audience to begin with. Right. Well, this comes down to marketing again, as I always said. Every time I go to a movie, I look around the theater, going, "What's what? How did this get to me? And is this my target? Am I in this target group?" And then I shudder. Um, one of the predictions that I had heard uh, before this was that uh, because of opening up the voting, that uh, Spike Lee would finally make it uh, to the list with Do the Right Thing. Because Do the right he, thing? it had never made it before, which is kind of shocking. Um, the yeah. fact that when it debuts, it debuts at 24 sort of shocks me. That's a, you know, how does it go from, honestly, not on the list to the 24th best? Yeah. Um, and look, when, when we first saw it, when it came out, uh, Mike Stewart and myself, there was somebody waiting to see it afterwards, you know, waiting to see a, a next showing and said, guys, how was it? And I remember Mike saying it was towering. <laughs> and towering. I thought that's not a bad word. That's not a bad it. word. Uh, and also, by the way, can't we say that that could be viewed as a, a comedy as well? I mean, yeah, there's big funny moments in it. And Playtime is right in front of it. That's the Jacques Tati film that I was mentioning. Oh, the last. Oh, Playtime. Jacques Tati to me is uh, if you have not seen Jacques Tati and his Summer Beach, it is the most funniest way of not being in your face comedy that we have now come accustomed to. It is literally uh, the most genteel but funny, but funny mise-en-scene like i've never seen a comedian use the camera the way jacques tati does and holy smokes if you are the future of comedy filmmaking if we say oh comedy doesn't travel overseas we can't do comedies because it doesn't sell in europe or china or whatever please everybody study jacques tati and every single frame if you are looking to do comedy films. I also would say, you know, we, we can wrap, get so wrapped up in something being successful, something being not successful, getting good reviews, getting bad reviews. Uh, boy, a bomb that got bad reviews from 1982, Blade Runner, <laughs> 54th greatest really? film of all time. Uh, um, tied with The Apartment ah! and, and Sherlock Jr. Wow, what a great triple bill, and frankly. And Battleship Potemkin. 
Man, I wouldn't put that one in. That's a little shocking to me. Um, so I don't know what else to, to say about these. Certain filmmakers do continue to have several entries. Uh, Andre Tarkovsky, who mm. we spoke about not long ago, um, when I had seen Solaris, though Solaris is not on this this list, but Andre Rubloff is uh, Stalker, which we saw, yeah. and uh, Mirror are all on it. Again, many Hitchcock, Rear Window, North by Northwest, Psycho, and uh, Near the Top, Vertigo. Right. Scorsese has two. Yeah. Remember when? Remember when it seemed like the consensus was forming about around Raging Bull as being, being not only his best but maybe the best movie of the eighties? Yeah, remember? That? Yeah, because it was it was uh, 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 such a gripping reversal of what eighties movies was at the and, time. And now it's clear that of his early golden period, it's Taxi Driver that everybody <laughs> and I would have always said it. And I thought, well, now that's fascinating, and it also proves kind of how much they don't like westerns because yes, they have the Searchers, but if Martin Scorsese hadn't remade it as Taxi Driver, would they bother to have the Searchers at all? That's what I wonder. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> Watch that is a great double bill, Taxi Driver and the Surges. It really is. It really. I mean, um, Harvey Keitel dressed as an Indian. <laughs> in I, it. Know. I, I know. Mean, right? It's so crazy. So crazy. Um, uh, Kubrick three, Shining, mm-hmm. Barry Lyndon, what, and uh, two thousand one, which we talked about. Um, yeah, I mean, Barry I was surprised when when to realize how beloved Barry Lyndon has become, though the last time I saw it. I, I got to tell you, like, I could watch this movie every day. And when I went to the LACMA exhibit of kind of entering the mind of yeah. Kubrick, and they had it on the wall, and you literally could enter it, yeah, I was set. going, I'm starting to appreciate this in a totally different way. Totally different way. But uh, there were other movies of his that uh, I think initially probably had more uh, critical acclaim surrounding like a clockwork orange maybe a dr strange love i think if you wanted to pick three that could not be more different from each other you've done a good job picking those for three. sure for sure barry linden barry linden's brilliant in use of uh, practical lighting like literally every shot is lit by candles or the natural lighting of the era you remember my old joke with maddie libatique maddie no. we're going to use only available light Grab every available light you can find and plug it in. <laughs> I don't remember that joke. That's pretty funny. Um, but it is fascinating, right, that you have, a, like I said, a Stephen King horror adaptation, The Shining. You've got a, a, a lush period piece, um, uh, the Barry Lyndon, and then you have this futuristic science fiction epic, uh, 2001. And yet, uh, if, if, if you had never seen him, and you were shown just a few minutes of it, you would know immediately who directed it. Yeah. All of them. All of them. But I, I demand everybody relook at Dr. Strangelove as the most brilliant film ever. I'm sorry. In terms of performance and uh, tension and just using uh, uh, a orchestrated, when Johnny comes marching home again, as your tension-building music over and over again as the, strat- the B-29 bomber is heading damaged to its bombing run. I did uh, just happen to notice that it is number 46 on the director's oh, list is it? of best yeah. films ever made. Uh, just uh, t- tied there with Psycho and Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now. 
the really horror good. film with uh, yeah Donald Sutherland, which is a very very good film. Mm-hmm. Heartbreaking for me that no Robert Altman is on either of these oh, lists. I none must say, yeah, that was um, of but course. But now Robin Altman, I'm going to say this about Altman film, and I know you're going to hate it. Yeah, uh, it seems uh, lackadaisical, improvisational. Everybody talking at the same time, so. I, yeah, well, nobody can listen to anybody anymore. One person, let alone multiple, multiple people. persons. So we can't differentiate. So we check out. Yeah. So so everybody talking over each other, which is the Altman. Uh, uh, Him telling us this is what life is going to be like. It. Yeah, we're all going to be. Yeah. yeah. So and he so, got to be right and unloved <laughs> because he's right. We're living in it, and I think it has to go beyond. Whatever that hey, is. How about though, Chris Marker? I'm seeing this on the film list. Uh, makes La Jetée, the short film that's all still images, right? Yeah. Twelve Monkeys is a remake of it, but it was also on the top films, not just the filmmaker list. And anyway, Chris Marker, super cool. He also directs the documentary Sans Soleil, which is a documentary on the top 100 films. <laughs> is it? Yeah. So oh. that's pretty neat. That's cool. Um, I think one of the big differences is that uh, eight and a half is in the 30s oh. of the top 100. But according to filmmakers, it's the sixth best. And of course, I have it in my top five. Uh, well, yeah, as a fil- because it is a story of a filmmaker struggling to make a film. Isn't it? Uh, Sunset Boulevard, which didn't make the top 100, makes the filmmakers list. Uh, we do love movies about yeah, ourselves, if you which love is why movie- I'm surprised that the player wasn't on here. Uh, well, you know what? I watched half of it recently, and it comes across as smug. Oh, it totally is smug. Yeah, but I didn't realize it was smug when I saw it. It was like, oh, yeah, this is what we're living in. On the filmmakers list, 2001 is number uh, one, and Citizen Kane is number two, and The Godfather is number three. Godfather 2 ranks very high, though. Yeah, and, then, uh, and I'm going to say 2001. I think that documentary on the making of 2001 that has been very popular on YouTube uh-huh. has uh, opened everybody's eyes in terms of what Kubrick had to face in a non-digital world to make those special effects work in terms of building that Ferris wheel camera rig in terms of just the pen floating and the and the waitress how about just in terms of getting himself the time to make that movie you know the way that he used his power to make sure that he would have time yeah uh was spectacular he's you know he's not the first person or the only person to compare filmmaking to to fighting a war right um and it can really feel that way. But he said that movie directing and warfare, combat, are the two professions where really you ought to have as much time as necessary to make decisions. Right. So that you're not reacting to things. You're calmly making the best decision possible and... Those are the two professions that you're never allowed to have that time. <laughs> That's right. Everything always has to be fast. Promotional consideration paid for by Empire State Gas. From farm to pump, we've got great gas. Belated spoiler alert.
Subspace. Dare to wonder.